very much. <clears throat> Amen. Well, I can tell you, I can say one thing for certain. Uh, I know that uh, almost all of us here surely miss when Pastor and Peg are gone. <laughs> I certainly miss them tonight, but uh, I believe that they are probably watching, and so I'm so thankful for the encouragement and for the Lord to help us. Aren't you thankful for the Lord to help us when we need it? Praise the Lord. Open your Bibles tonight, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, yet again. And uh, tonight's message, however, will, by the grace of God, close out this chapter, this 8th chapter of Mark. But, even though I say that, it is by no means the closure of our study through this gospel record. We are halfway through. Not bad, six months or more, and we're halfway through the gospel, and so praise the Lord, we'll just continue on uh, as God gives uh, ability to do so. So Mark chapter 8, we will be reading shortly, starting in verse number 34, but before that, as it goes that we are closing out this particular chapter, it's a good time, I think, to be reminded that in a sequential study like we're doing through right through from the first of Mark right through in a sequential study like this or perhaps like in Psalms that we're doing on the Wednesday nights with pastor although they will not be here this Wednesday uh, so we'll pray and see what the Lord will lead to have me to share with you Wednesday night uh, but when we're in a sequential study many times it may seem like closing out a chapter or, or, or even just a portion within a chapter sometimes it seems like closing that portion out means that the subject matter should change for the next part of the study or the next time that we meet. Well, that's not always the case. You've been in church any number of years or months or however long you've been attending church, you know that when you just stop one chapter, it's just a step into the next chapter. When we close out a book, it's just a step into the next book. And it's not that uh, we're closing out some kind of information, we're just finding different ways of looking at things as God leads. So, it's not always the case, and certainly tonight is one of those times that while our text, now if you've got a marked Bible, maybe in verse number 34 you've got this little paragraph symbol next to yours. It indicates that it's a new paragraph. So, it's one of those times that while the text here is marked as a new paragraph, it, it really... This text is really a rather close follow-on, if you will. Not necessarily a part two, but it's a follow-on of the last topic that we studied last week. So let's look at this. Read along in your Bibles with me as I read Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through the end of the chapter. The Bible here says, And when he, that is Jesus, and when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, as you may recall, last week's message, 
was centered upon the critical nature of your opinion as it relates to who Jesus is. But we also saw how our own state of opinion takes on a much lower significance if and when our actions and our behaviors fail to agree with that professed stance. Such was the evidence. If you recall last week, such was the evidence when Peter's self-well-intentioned actions of taking hold of and rebuking Jesus after hearing the details of God's plan, it drew a rather sharp and unexpected rebuke in return. You'll remember Jesus said, as we read in verse 33 last week, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Now, like many of us, and when I say us, I mean, like many professing and Bible-believing Christians, like many of us, I am sure that Peter thought that he was doing okay in his spiritual walk at the time. I mean, he clearly felt some level of comfort with Christ to react in this manner, and and we know that he reacted in the, the right way when Jesus said, but who do you say that I am, and Peter, without hesitation, said, Thou art the Christ. But when Jesus spoke the words for all the disciples to hear and exposed the truth behind Peter's actions, I imagine that there was a lengthy moment of pure silence as those words sharpened the disciples' understanding that Jesus is the divine Messiah with whom there is no equal. I, I, I have to believe that as Peter said, no, Lord, it can't be, be it far from thee. And Jesus, looking about, the Bible says, looked about at all the disciples and said, get thee behind me, Satan, when he turned to Peter. Wow. Okay, what did I just do? I have to believe there was that moment that seemed like an eternity of just pure silence and letting those words sink right to the heart of the matter. And so it is with Jesus' pronouncement resonating that we see the first word of our text tonight, as we've already read, and it really ties that passage about who do you say that I am together with this passage that we read tonight. And the first word in verse 34 was, and. You see, it ties them together. It's a, it's a conjunction, and it just says, that goes right along with this. You can't separate the two. So as we study this text tonight, keep in mind, if you would, the point of truth that we saw demonstrated as we studied a couple of weeks ago, And that is that Jesus just does not leave any work unfinished. You see, I believe that our text tonight is the resolution to that point that was exposed about Peter's heart, as we were just reminded. Now, I also believe, just as there is no temptation but such as is common to all men, 
so our human nature and our heart's condition are also common to all men. And that is, the condition is, the spiritual need for growth. God has preserved this portion of text for us and for all who read it as a help for us to continue in our growth. You see, as the opinion was stated and then as the life evidence didn't support the opinion stated of Peter, now Jesus is going to come back and include everyone around and he's going to explain exactly what he means and exactly what we need as our help. So I see three things in this uh, portion of text. And the first one is uh, longer than the rest, but uh, three things that we're going to look at tonight, if you would. The call to act, and then the consideration, and then the culmination, or the conclusion, if you will. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, again we ask that as we look to your word tonight, that Father, it will not be the words of uh, this servant of yours. For Father, I am fallible. I am riddled with mistakes. And Father, I'd ask that your Holy Spirit would open my understanding and open our understanding tonight so that, Father, your Spirit can speak to our hearts so that, Lord, as we leave this place, whether it's those of us gathered together in the sanctuary or whether those that are gathered online now listening to your word here tonight as well, Father, won't you work mightily so that, Lord, as your word penetrates to our hearts, that, Father, it affects a change in us that is so very noticeable as we leave here tonight. God, may your will be accomplished. We do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the call to act, or the call to action, if you will. I've titled the message, as I mentioned this morning, and for those that are taking notes, if you didn't remember it, I've titled the message tonight, Actions Speak Louder Than Words. Don't you find that true, no matter what it is? Whether it's our spiritual lives, whether it's witnessing, or whether it's, hey, did you do the chores that I asked you to do? Uh-huh. Oh, then why do I still see that it needs to be vacuumed? Or why are there still dishes in the sink? Right? Whatever it is, our actions speak louder than our words. You can say something, but if it's not followed with the evidentiary behaviors, as I mentioned, what we say is now of less significance. Right? Amen? It's true. But the call to action here tonight, actions speak louder than words. The importance, I think, of the lesson that Jesus is teaching here is acknowledged by the fact that Jesus made a point of gathering not only his disciples to hear what he was about to say, but as the text begins, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also. It would seem then by this context that as we read it last week, Jesus and his disciples were on their way into, into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And he was conversing with them by the way or as they were traveling. So it would seem by the context as it starts out that as they came into this town, multitudes had not yet gathered, but maybe they were starting to. But Jesus made it a point to pause. Now, the rebuke of Peter was done in the presence only of, by what I read in the scriptures, it was only done in the presence of his disciples. Because it was a very personal matter. It was a one-on-one -on -one situation, but the disciples also had to benefit from that. So Jesus looked about to his disciples and he rebuked Peter. But now he says, the Bible says when he called 
called the people unto him with his disciples also. You see, his explanation here, his expounding of the word here, his, how should we say it, his, his explanation of the truth is going to be so valuable, not just for the disciples, but it's so valuable all of the people needed to hear it. And friends, I believe even as Christians, as long as you may have been a Christian, probably longer than I have perhaps, that's irrelevant because we all need to be reminded. I know I do, and I'm going to presume that you do, and that's going to be forward of me, but that's okay because none of us have achieved yet that immortality. I had to be careful there. None of us have achieved that incorruptibleness yet. So God has preserved it because we all need this. Now I am sure that we all have an understanding of what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? Well, remember that as they had been traveling and conversing, we know that Jesus had just opened up a subject matter in the rebuke of Peter. That being that what we say doesn't always match the things that we do. As pastor has said many times, we can talk the talk, but if we don't walk the talk, then the talk is just talk. Right? It doesn't mean anything. You see, this is a subject that is applicable to everyone. And so Jesus says to all the people with his disciples, also in the second part of this verse, he writes, or he says, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As I said, I'm sure that we all have an understanding of what Jesus is saying. But I think there are a couple of things that we should acknowledge as we look at this statement and, and these words of Christ a little bit more closely. Isn't that the very nature of study? And that's what we're doing here together. We're studying through this gospel. First, Jesus again makes it very clear that there is no restriction as to who may or may not be included when he said, whosoever will. There is no restriction. Whosoever will includes Everyone. Now sometimes, I think we also have to consider what is not said. That it is just as important as what is said. Jesus did not say, whosoever is worthy. That's not what he said. Jesus did not say, whosoever is going to be saved as God appoints them to be saved. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say, whosoever works hard enough or whosoever gives enough money, or whosoever is pure or or kind or just really trying to be good enough, none of that is what Jesus said. Jesus said, whosoever will. Oh, isn't that glorious? There is no one that is restricted from taking Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. No one. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what we've done in the past. It doesn't matter what we do as long as we are repentant and come to Christ in truth and asking. There is no one that is restricted. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth. Right? Exactly. 
Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, I have paraphrased that verse. That's not all that that verse says, but that is the crux. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God does not disallow anyone who comes to repentance and asks for that forgiveness and gives their heart and their life over to God. We sing a song that says God will in no wise cast them out. So Jesus reiterates it here again in our verse. He says, whosoever will come after me. Now, what does that phrase mean? Whosoever will come after me. Well, we're all come after him because he was a long time ago. Well, that's not really what it means, although that's included. But that whole phrase carries with it the idea or the meaning that whosoever chooses to identify with Christ or whosoever will follow the principles and the precepts by which Jesus lived his earthly life. Right? Whosoever will come after me. Whosoever will follow me. Whosoever will live by the example that I have given you. Whosoever. In other words, if you choose to call yourself a Christian, Jesus says in the rest of verse 34, then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now one of the first things that I was reminded of as I studied this passage and thought on it, meditated on it, was Exodus chapter chapter 20 and verse number 7. What does that verse say? That verse, you'll recognize it, is right in the heart of the Ten Commandments as we know them. That verse says, Thou shalt not take the name of of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. You see, friends, there is no value. There is no credence. There is no gain that is to be had by just using the name of Christ as some sort of a, well, a, a badge to flash. Yep, I'm a Christian. I, I, I will I will say this for the time that we spent in North Carolina, and we go out knocking on doors a few times, and I can't tell you the number of people that, oh, you're from the church? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You you, you don't need to stop here. I'm I'm all set. Really? Everybody's a Christian. <laughs> in the heart of the Bible Belt, on everybody's a Christian. But friends, it's not some sort of a badge that we can flash and say, yep, I'm all set. You don't need to worry about me. Don't pray for me. Don't even bother me. Don't talk to me about the Lord. I'm a Christian. I'm all set. Thank you very much. It's also not some token title to put on your personal resume. Well, I'm a Christian, so therefore I'm a good person. Therefore, you should hire me because I'm a Christian. Oh, don't don't ever think that we can manipulate the name of Christ 
for our personal gain like that. God takes this very, very seriously. The Bible says that he will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God takes it very seriously because his only begotten son gave his life. He was willingly, brutally beaten and willingly crucified to afford you and me the grace and the forgiveness and the privilege to accept the gift of being able to claim the name of Christ as Christian. He died for that privilege. We cannot take it lightly, for God does not take it lightly. So Jesus says, if you identify with me because of that sacrifice on your behalf, right, that's what he says, whosoever will come after me, then let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, Paul also reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, what does he say? You are not your own. Oh, that's right. He tells us how we are bought with a price. You are not your own. And thus, we cannot have any kind of success or peace if we are going through each day trying to figure out life on our own trying to get through life's trials on our own, it's not going to work very long. Jesus says that we must recognize that fact and actively abandon and disown and abstain from conducting our lives as though we control our own destiny or I'm going to follow my own heart. Boy, I, I've seen that on, I don't know, I've seen it on a bumper sticker, I've seen it on little plaques, I've seen it in lots of different places. Follow your, own, follow your own destiny. You control your own destiny. Only so far as I choose whether or not I'm going to follow Christ. Beyond that, that's up to God. Jeremiah tells us, as Pastor mentioned it this morning, that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Why would I want to follow my own heart if it's that way? Why would I want to follow a fleshly, carnal, deceitful, desperately wicked heart when I could follow Jesus Christ? When I could follow the Master? When I could follow the perfect example? When I could follow the one who will give me eternal life? He says, let him deny himself. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and my burden is light. Christian, can I ask you, those of you at home, can I ask you tonight, is the burden of life light on your shoulders? When you go from one day to the next day and have to deal with all of the things that we have to deal with in life, whether it's family issues or job issues or financial issues or persecution issues, whatever it is, maybe it's health issues, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe there's something I, don't even, I couldn't even fathom. Is that burden of life light on our shoulders if we don't have Jesus Christ to help us? He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. 
He says, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and my burden is light. You see, this direction from our Savior is clearly much more involved than just acknowledging who Christ is with words. Peter found that out. And Jesus here is telling all who will hear him and all who will listen, all who will study and look at and read and understand this passage of Scripture that has been preserved, he's telling us all that it is our actions behind the words that speak the loudest. Taking up our cross, what is that? Well, that, you know, I had to think about that. And I'm sure that there's probably some great answer that would take us a whole service to figure out. But I believe, friends, that taking up our cross is something akin to, or something kind of like, not nearly matching it, but kind of like when Jesus had to bear his cross to Calvary. Bear his cross, the burden that was on his shoulders, he had to carry that to the place of final resolution at Calvary. Now, what was Jesus' burden? What was Jesus' cross? But it was the sin of the whole world. We don't have that kind of a burden on us. What is our burden? Well, unlike Jesus, who took the sin of the whole world upon himself so that he could be the atonement by blood sacrifice for the whole world, our burden must be the cares of this world that we face, that we hold on to. They must be our burden is the deeds of our flesh. Our burden is the deceitfulness of riches, something that enters into our lives that chokes out anything that enters into our lives that chokes out and hinders our spiritual growth. Friends, that's our burden. If you think about, I don't know, the last week, the last month, the last years, as they have happened, have there been things that have worked to try to choke out your spiritual growth and mine? I know there have been. That's our burden. That's our cross. And Jesus says, deny yourself. You can't fix it. Take up that cross. Bring that burden to the place of final resolution. Lay it at the cross of Christ. He says, take my burden upon you, my yoke upon you. My burden is light. You see, these things that Jesus said are to be mortified. You remember that scripture? It says, mortify the deeds of the flesh. We are to take them and follow Jesus to Calvary, as it were, lay them at the foot of his cross, as he said, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. But if we're not willing to deny ourselves, I got this, Lord. This, the, don't, don't you worry yourself. You take care of the big things. You know, like, I don't know, world war and, and, and take care of things like our president. Take care of things like Putin. Take care of things like, you know, communist dictators around the world. Take care of terrorism. Take care of the big things in life. God, I have the little stuff. But do we really? I dare say no, we don't. I was reading a devotional the other day. And it, it said... 
very quickly, it's, it, it just said something to the effect of don't calculate anything without God. What does that mean? It means don't figure out how you can do something without God. Don't lay your plans for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Don't lay out your life plan without God. Because it's going to fail. Only by the grace of God will things, and only by the inclusion of God, will things succeed and will have good success, as the Bible says. Oh, but, you know, there's so many people that have earned billions of dollars. Okay, well, tell me how much peace Bill Gates has. Tell me how much peace Elon Musk has. George Soros. The billionaires around the world. Tell me how much peace in life do they have. I dare say not much. Certainly not much more than the temporary satisfaction that maybe they can get from their money. You see, it's those things that will choke out our spiritual growth that we have to take up, take them to Jesus. He says, take up the cross and follow me, is what Jesus said. Which brings us to the second point. It's, it's shorter than the first. The consideration. Truly following Christ, then, will present opportunities for, let's call it, perceived loss. Think about your life. As you have given your life to Christ, and as you have tried to follow Christ, and as you have followed Christ, have there not been times when it seems like you have lost some things? Maybe it was some friends. Maybe it was a job opportunity. Maybe it was, oh man, that's a great job, but uh, I have to work every Sunday. I can't be in church. Yeah, no, I'm not. Think about if we are truly following Christ, then there will be opportunities for a perceived loss. If we indeed live by Christ's example, which is abstaining from all appearance of evil, as we are commanded, and being holy as God is holy, as we are commanded, we very well will lose some friendships that maybe we once had before we were saved. Or we may lose job opportunities. We may lose the possibilities of promotions at our current workplace. Indeed, we will suffer some kind of ridicule and ill will against us. Have you ever tried to share Christ with someone and gotten a, I don't want to hear that response? And yet Jesus addresses those concerns as well. Right here in this passage, look at with me, verse 35 through 37. Again, the Bible says, Jesus says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, as I read that, it is a very real possibility that this verse could and one day perhaps will be manifested literally. What does that mean? There indeed may come a time again in which we are faced with the same choice that reportedly 
a teenage girl in the Columbine High School faced in 1999. Reportedly, the shooters asked, her name was Rachel Scott, are you a Christian? And when she responded yes, was shot dead. Now, is that the only reason she was shot? I don't know. Is that a true account of what happened? I can't tell you I wasn't there. But as it was reported, Rachel Scott gave her life because she did not deny Christ. So the Bible says here, for whosoever will save his life, she had the opportunity, perhaps, we don't know, we don't know the mind of the crazy guy that was doing the shooting there, perhaps, had she denied knowing Christ, maybe this crazed individual wouldn't have shot her. Although I don't know that that would have worked either because I do believe that Rachel Scott had that testimony about her with everyone else that she was a Christian and she was a devout Christian. But the Bible says that for whosoever will save his life by denying Christ shall lose it. But, he, said, he writes here, he says, Jesus says, whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Oh, may God help us that we don't have to face that situation. But if that is part of God's plan, may we be never so faithful as in that moment so that we do not try to save our own life by denying Christ, but rather be as faithful as Rachel Scott reportedly was, or as faithful as the three Hebrew men were as they faced their fiery furnace. Yet if we never find ourselves in that literal situation, the premise of this principle still holds true. If we are not ever willing to give up the things that Satan or our flesh try to use to entice us against God, that is the save our life part, then we really cannot claim to be any part of God's children. And we will be counted with the wicked to whom Christ will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. Now I mentioned just a moment ago that this happening was part of God's plan. And God, may, God, may God help us that we don't have to face that. But if it is God, part of God's plan, now what does that mean? If it's part of God's plan that I'd be shot because I'm a Christian? That doesn't sound like a loving God. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. I would ask you this. Did the stoning of Stephen make any sense? It was part of the plan of God. How? That doesn't make Stephen was full of faith and of the Spirit of God. And he was witnessing and he was a faithful child of God. Working great works in the name of God. How was it part of God's plan that he be stoned to death? Do you remember who was standing by holding the coats? A young man by the name of Saul. Who became Paul. Who became one of the greatest apostles, church planters, preachers that we have record of. It was part of God's plan. Not necessarily that Stephen was stoned, but as part of the plan that his death 
would be a martyr and it would be used to help Paul, Saul see the light and become Paul and turn his life over to Christ. How do we know what God might use in our life? It sure doesn't feel like having this disease that I can't be cured of. It doesn't feel like that's God's good plan for me. You don't know that. But if we'll be faithful to God in that What did Stephen say as he was being stoned? He was on his knees. He looked up to heaven. He opened his eyes. He saw Christ and he said, lay not this charge on their account. Jesus hanging on the cross on Calvary looked up to heaven and said, God forgive them for they know not what they do. Maybe it will be part of God's plan for us that somehow, maybe something bad is going to happen to us that we might think is bad. But God's thoughts and God's ways are so much greater. They're so much higher than our thoughts, than our ways. We don't know how God might use a certain situation in our life. If we save our own life, ultimately, I believe, We do it because we're not truly a child of God. And in that case, Christ will one day say, Depart from me, I never knew you. And then we get to verse 36. The Bible here says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does this possibly mean? All it means is that there is nothing in this world that can be offered to redeem or to fix our soul. Nothing. In fact, if we recall our history, and we have it right here in God's Word, it took divine intervention to provide a suitable redemption. Nothing in this world. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It's that important. God doesn't take it lightly. Now there's further application that could be made. It involves the nature of the work we do in Christ's name. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. It talks about our work being tried by fire. And if our work being burned, then we shall suffer loss. But we ourselves shall be saved, yet so as by fire. But for tonight, we'll stay with our text. As it clearly highlights that our actions do indeed make or break our words, most certainly when speaking of our relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Brings us to the close, the culmination, if you will. Verse number 38. Once again, verse 38 says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, friends and those who may be listening tonight that aren't sure about this matter of being saved, Jesus spoke these words nearly 2,000 years ago, and he said then that they were in the midst of an evil generation, an adulterous and sinful generation generation, one that was more concerned about personal pleasure and satisfaction than about serving the one who could and would provide them eternal hope and eternal life in the heaven of heavens. 
Friends, 2,000 years later, here we are. Are we not in a generation that is 2,000 years worse? Oh, it sure seems it. You look around at the world around us and it's just not good. But we still have the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Actions speak louder than words. We can have our opinion, and our opinion is critical of who Jesus is. But Christians, if our actions don't back up our words, then our words are pointless. And there'll be nothing but hypocrisy. We cannot just say that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. The proof is in the pudding, as it were. The proof is in the actions behind our words, and those actions speak the loudest. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we close out tonight's message, O Lord God, forgive us. Oh, God, strengthen us in this matter of living our life as a representation of the words that we speak about our relationship with you. God, and that doesn't mean just living it in front of others. For God, that means also that we must live it in integrity, living it when there is no one else to see or to hold us accountable because we are always before you. And it is to you alone that we will give an account of our stewardship and of our life. Father, forgive me. Forgive us, Lord. Strengthen us. Help us. Encourage us. Embolden us, Lord, to live the life that you have asked us to live and to do so in the name of Jesus Christ, standing strong. You've told us through the Apostle Paul that I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. God, strengthen us tonight. Help us to live as we go forth from this place tonight to be that ambassador for you, come what may, that you will be glorified in all that we do and say. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.